Hello, and welcome back to the 46 Brooklyn podcast. I'm your host, Ben Link, the president of 46 Brooklyn Research, but I'm also a pharmacist fed up with fake artificially inflated drug prices. Today's episode is number eight for the podcast and one less focused on drug pricing benchmarks and rather is going to be a discussion on how an understanding of the pricing benchmarks we've already talked about on prior episodes in our Drug Pricing 101 series can yield a broader understanding of what is going on with prescription drug prices, particularly through data analysis using those pricing benchmarks as a guiding source of information. If you've been following along with our podcast episodes to date, we have explored many, but not all, of the various drug pricing benchmarks used in the U.S. drug supply chain. And while there are others out there that we could talk about, such as 340B ceiling prices or the Federal Supply Service price, known as FSS, I figured it was appropriate at this point to move away from conversations on drug pricing benchmarks and instead focus on how those drug pricing benchmarks actually play out when analyzing prescription drug data. We'll likely return to our Drug Pricing 101 series at a later date, perhaps for a 102 level series to explore some of the missing price reference points, but I want to advance the conversation a little and now seemed as good as time as any to review a little bit of how we at 46 Brooklyn got where we are today. So as a reminder, the goal of the 46 Brooklyn podcast is to introduce the core concepts of the U.S. drug supply chain to hopefully foster a better understanding of the data available at 46brooklyn.com, but to also provide enough foundational knowledge that listeners can be better equipped to contextualize other drug pricing research, or better yet, pursue their own research. As with any educational endeavor, I've attempted to present the information in a logical manner to hopefully ease understanding. However, I want to recognize and acknowledge that everyone learns differently. To that end, if you have questions or comments regarding these materials, please reach out to us on our website. Okay, with this episode's intro out of the way, let's talk about how we can take what we've learned about drug pricing benchmarks and begin to apply it to drug data analytics. As mentioned just a moment ago, this is in essence how 46 Brooklyn got its start. You see, the very first piece ever published at 46brooklyn.com was an exploration of two key data sets, which we continue to rely upon to this day. And both of them are data sets we've already mentioned on this podcast. The first is the National Average Drug Acquisition Cost, or NADAC, database. And the second is Medicaid's State Drug Utilization Database, or SDUD. We've briefly talked about these data sets before, and if you need a refresher, there is always the glossary of terms on 46brooklyn.com. But for today's podcast, it's probably best to give a little reminder about these data sets, as a proper understanding of what they are will be critical to the conversation I'd like to have today. That said, recall that NADAC is a representation of what it costs a pharmacy to acquire specific medications from wholesalers of prescription drugs. It is arguably the best representation of a drug's actual acquisition cost, or AAC, because it is based not on a manufacturer's reported price, but rather on a survey of pharmacy invoices from wholesalers. 
What's more is most state Medicaid programs in some way, shape, or form have effectively told the federal government through their state plan amendments that they believe NADAC to be the most appropriate representation of a drug's actual acquisition cost in terms of complying with federal rules on drug reimbursement. However, if you followed along with drug pricing discussions over the years, a lot of attention is given to the prices manufacturers set for drugs rather than the price at the pharmacy. Heck, we even began our Drug Pricing 101 series with a focus on manufacturer set prices. Nonetheless, it is important to note that there are a lot of intermediaries in the drug supply chain. And each of those intermediaries today makes a profit off the drug's price in some way, shape, or form. We've reviewed these relationships before on the podcast, but profits on drugs are made by the manufacturer as a function of list price, but also the drug wholesaler, the pharmacy, and the entity providing drug insurance, whether that is a health plan or a pharmacy benefit manager, are also making profits off of the drug's list price. So while NADAC does have its limitations, which we discussed in episode four, it is arguably the best pricing benchmark if our goal is to understand the price of a drug at the point right before it reaches the person actually taking the drug, hence our frequent reliance upon it. Stated differently, while the manufacturer may set a price for a drug and therefore a ceiling for the drug's price a la MSRP, the supply chain will act on and around that price to make their money. And ultimately, patients can only take a medication which they can afford, which means NADAC gives us some insight into a patient's price experience before it actually reaches them, a kind of floor to what the pharmacy could theoretically offer the drug at, absent, say, any loss leader or other business strategy for the pricing of that medication at the pharmacy. So if that's NADAC, the next database to remind ourselves about is SDUD, which provides us with valuable insights into two key metrics. One is what medications people are ultimately consuming and to what degree they're consuming them. And two, what is the cost to the system, in this case, Medicaid as the insurer, to distribute those medications to people. Exploring the first item further, a manufacturer's list price for a drug, or even a NADAC price, is inconsequential if ultimately no one takes it. You or I or anyone else could create a drug company tomorrow and set a $10 million price tag for a drug, whether it represented a novel therapeutic or a simple copy of an existing drug. All in the hopes to quickly retire to Barbados in just a few short years through the sales of our $10 million product. But... If we can't demonstrate a need for the drug, or at the very least convince anyone to take it, and none of what we made ends up getting used, the $10 million price tag we set is effectively nothing more than a headline. And with that understanding slash recap out of the way, we're now in the perfect spot to explore just why SDUD is so critical to our understanding of U.S. drug prices. SDUD helps us understand what one of the largest purchasers of drugs in this country, namely Medicaid, which covers an excess of 70 million people 
in the U.S., or approximately 25% of the total population in this country, what is Medicaid doing drug-wise on an aggregate basis across all 50 states? And unlike other data sources, such as those available from Medicare, Medicaid provides the data aggregated to a National Drug Code, or NDC, level. This benefit cannot be understated. Ultimately, drugs are priced and used at the NDC level. And so being able to tie a drug's price to actual utilization is critical to our monthly efforts at 46 Brooklyn to examine drug pricing trends. What do I mean by this? Well, simply identifying whether a drug's price across any of the numerous pricing benchmarks is going up or down actually doesn't tell us a whole heck of a lot as we were just exploring with our hypothetical $10 million drug example. But a more real example of this phenomenon can also be provided. Consider for a moment brand name medications with generic alternatives. Again, we've reviewed the idea of brands and generics before, but if you need a refresher on these topics, feel free to use our glossary at 46brooklyn.com. Anyway, these brand drugs that have generic alternatives routinely have price changes years and years after there is effectively no utilization for their products. There is little utilization for them because almost everyone is now using the generic instead of the brand. Take some real-life examples in January of 2022. Which would you think was a more significant event from the experience of Medicaid? Micardis, a medication used to control blood pressure, taking a 35% decrease in its WAC list price at the start of 2022? Or Humira, a medication used to treat semi-rare inflammatory conditions like arthritis, taking a 7.4% increase. Just looking at the degree of price changes and knowing nothing about these drugs beyond what I just told you, a lot of people have, say, high blood pressure, then say relatively rare inflammatory conditions almost certainly would lead one to conclude that the myocarditis event was more significant. How many of us would benefit if a drug we were taking, say insulin, for example, was overnight 35% cheaper? And if you took that stance, I cannot necessarily blame you with the information you had on hand, but that wouldn't stop me from arguing with you that you were wrong. I'd begin such a counter-argument by pointing out that Micardis is a brand medication with a generic alternative. And therefore, there's effectively no utilization in Medicaid last year for Micardis. To be specific, there was less than $1 million in total sales across all 50 states reported in SDUD data. So while its pricing movement was more extreme, it isn't going to benefit very many people. Contrast that to Humira, which is arguably the best-selling drug in the last decade by sales with no generic alternative available. Last year, SDUD tells us that unlike Micardis, Medicaid spent almost $3 billion before rebates delivering Humira to patients. 
With that context, I'd strongly believe that you'd come around to my point of view, that while Humira's pricing movement was less extreme than Micardis, it's the more significant event from a holistic perspective of drug pricing. So that is the utilization angle of SDUD and an overview of the value it can add to our discussions around drug prices. But what about the pricing data within SDUD? Well, also reported within SDUD at the NDC level is the aggregate payment experience of the Medicaid program to deliver those drugs to patients. And while much of the Medicaid program is actually financed in what is known as capitated payment arrangements, meaning that the individual transactions may not accurately represent how much Medicaid paid for those drugs, the data is nonetheless useful for numerous reasons. The first is that the reason for the capitated arrangement in many Medicaid programs across the country is a direct result of those programs partnering with managed care organizations, or MCOs, in an attempt to effectively bring commercial market-based solutions to the management of these Medicaid programs, including prescription drugs. And so the reported prices by the MCOs are at least on some level a proxy to commercial drug prices more broadly, certainly more broadly than state-run programs. Additionally, the reported prices are used to determine future capitated rates. So while Medicaid agencies may not recognize the cost directly for each reported transaction, the bill ultimately comes due in some way, shape, or form when they inevitably revisit their capitated rates. And because the data is reported at the NDC level within STUD, it becomes possible to marry the NADAC pricing behavior of drugs, which again represents the pharmacy's cost of goods sold, to the payment experience of the Medicaid program or its cost of delivering benefits for those same drugs. What we saw way back in 2018 when 46 Brooklyn published its first piece on this topic was significant gaps between what Medicaid was paying for drugs, according to SDUD data, and what those drugs actually cost to pharmacies, according to NADAC data. For example, in that initial report is an image of imatinib mesylate, generic Gleevec, which at the time had a NADAC cost per pill of roughly $80. However, Ohio Medicaid was paying $273 per pill within its MCO programs, whereas, say, Washington, a different state, was paying $108 per pill, roughly half that cost. Same drug, heck, probably even some of the same pharmacy chains in each state, very different pricing experience. In an Axios piece released in August 2018, highlighting the launch of our website and dashboard, Bob Herman opined, these datasets are the clearest examples yet that show specifically how some states are getting bad deals on prescription drugs and how middlemen like pharmacy benefit managers manipulate the current drug pricing system for their own gains, end quote. With that bit of guidance, Robert Langreth and a team of reporters at Bloomberg 
explored the odd disconnect between these data sets as well in their September 2018 expose titled The Secret Drug Pricing System Middlemen Use to Rake in Millions. These gaps between the surveyed cost of the drug and what state Medicaid programs were being charged for those drugs inevitably led to the next finding relating to using uh, drug pricing benchmarks. The data we are exploring at 46 Brooklyn began to be married by others to actual pharmacy reimbursement data and not just the data reported to state Medicaid programs. Once that was done, it was quickly discovered that the payment data within SDUD, as reported to Medicaid, was also not reflective of what pharmacies were actually being paid. Rather, pharmacies in the aggregate were being paid significantly less than what Medicaid programs were being charged for the drugs delivered to their patients. Which, of course, bears the question, what was SDUD actually telling us about drug prices? And it was in seeking the answer to that question that the exploration of SDUD and NADAC data would ultimately reveal and provide key insights into what at the time became known as the traditional PBM pricing model, but what we now more than likely refer to as spread pricing. And while we don't have time to go into all of the learnings about the spread pricing model today, the rest of that history is well documented with Sensei, the side effect series of the Columbus Dispatch, which you can still find online. And a link to that reporting is available on our website if you want to follow along to the written version of this podcast. If you haven't seen any of the multi-year work that was done by the dispatch reporters, Marty Schladen, Kathy Kandiski, Lucas Sullivan, and Daryl Rowland, we highly recommend it. In 2019, the National Institute of Healthcare Management Foundation awarded the Dispatch the highly coveted Print Journalism Award for their industry-altering reporting that beat out the biggest names in media like the New York Times, the Washington Post, and others for exposing what was previously unknown to most. That there's so much more to what's cooked into prescription drug costs than meets the eye. Through it all, we quickly began to understand some of the gaps in our understanding of drug prices that were resulting from too close a focus on the extreme ends of the supply chain, namely the manufacturer set price or the pharmacy acquisition price. And even today, despite more than a hundred of articles within the Dispatch Side Effects series and some excellent additional reporting from the Dayton Daily News and the Ohio Capital Journal, there is still an incredible gap in understanding of the middle of the proverbial drug pricing pie. As an example, within the aggregated Medicaid day level available at MACPAC, a nonpartisan group which helps monitor the Medicaid program, we could see that despite spending $70 billion per year on drugs, a number that correlates with what we see within the SDUD data, the Medicaid program is getting billions of dollars in drug rebates each year, roughly equivalent to a 60% discount on the upfront cost of drugs. Again, all of this highlights the great deal of money prescription drug programs are making between paying the pharmacy 
and what they're recognizing in the net. Ultimately, we need to appreciate is that our understanding about what we think we know about drug prices in this country is not really possible without transparency around data. And looking at our own history at 46 Brooklyn, and generally speaking, of course, the focus of drug pricing transparency that has been directed at the extreme ends of the supply chain, all of that has occurred at the detriment of understanding the prices in the middle. We have countless ways of determining a drug's manufacturer price, such as WAC, AMP, ASP, all prices we've talked about before. Similarly, we have countless ways of understanding a pharmacy's price, such as UNC, the PBM's MAC rate, or even NADAC. However, how many benchmarks do we have that explore wholesaler markups? How many do we have that explore pharmacy markups or clinics markups or heck, even the surgery markup on the drug's cost used to control blood flow or knock you out for your procedure? How much do we know about average rebate payments by drug at the NDC level? What do we know about 340B discounts, rebate aggregator markups, or other GPO impacts on price? That's a lot of questions that despite all our windows into transparency that we've thus far got, we've not been able to really answer. We don't know about the transactional nature of the fees that occur between intermediaries in the drug channel. I'd argue we have access to very limited publicly available information on what's happening in the middle of the transaction, which hinders a broader understanding of what's really going on with drug prices. So on our next episode, we'll continue the conversation by exploring arguably the best and most transparent insight we have into what the quote unquote middle really represents. We'll do this by exploring an albeit limited example with the drug albendazole using the pricing benchmarks we've already discussed, as well as some of the data available through the much discussed Mark Cuban Cost Plus drug company in terms of what it taught us regarding albendazole's price. This is a limited example, which will hopefully help us understand how much of the middle we're currently missing. I want to thank you for listening today, and I hope you'll tune in to our next episode. The 46 Brooklyn podcast would like to thank McGowan Braybender for the use of their facilities in recording our podcast. We'd also like to thank Ben at Journeyman Productions for assistance with our music and sound. As a reminder to our listeners, if you're curious about any of the materials discussed on today's episode, additional information can always be found on 46brooklyn.com.